Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. No, your ears do not deceive you. Your eyes did not deceive you. There is an update to Outkick the Culture. Welcome in. I'm Jason Martin, your host. You can follow me on Twitter at jmartoutkick. You can send love, hate, whatever to jmartclone at gmail.com. So a lot of folks have come to me. You know, I say a lot, but some folks, and it's kind of been sporadic. Like it's been, you know, every week there'll be somebody that will say something or maybe I'll get an email asking where the podcast has been and asking is it coming back? I want your thoughts on this show that just came back or this. I want you to talk about Roseanne. I want you to talk about the Americans or Barry or whatever. So I don't know what this podcast is going to sound like today, but I want to, you know, this is the first day where I have felt okay to come back and do this show. And so I'm going to lay this out for you as honestly as I can, because for such a long time in my life, I tried to find ways to sugarcoat over certain things or to appear to be something that I was not or whatever else over if you follow me on Twitter and if you do thank you for that I appreciate it but you've noticed I don't tweet often or nearly as much as maybe I once did I used to be incessant with it I used to constantly have Twitter open like I know many of you do and certainly many people in the media do because we kind of have to be tuned into things that are going on there have been a couple of times over the last several months where I've gone social media dark for over a week where I don't even check, don't check it at all. Uh, even work related, I don't check it at all. Usually I try to do it when I'm on vacation or something to that effect. This week long vacation I took last month, for example, I did not get on Twitter at all. Not once. I actually moved the icon off of its usual spot so that I wouldn't even accidentally click on it. And I buried it in a folder on my phone. All of this comes down to one thing. Again, if you've been following me as of late, this will probably not come as any surprise. And I've talked about it some on this show before. And if you come here and you know me and you care about my opinion or what I have to say, then this will not come as a surprise that I'm going to talk about this on the podcast. But back in September, I opened a Bible for the first time in a long time. I, well, I mean, I've been going to church there for a couple of months since I moved to Nashville back in May. I kind of found a, found a church in July, August, since it had started going. But as a result of some things not turning in my direction early in the fall, I reached out to a friend of mine who I was a year ahead of in school. He's a lot younger than me, but I kind of had mentored him to some extent. He was naturally gifted, so I don't know how much I actually taught him, but I mentored him. And he took over as the executive producer of the sports show, television show, and radio show in Bowling Green at uh, Western Kentucky, where I went to school. And I had those two positions and kind of taught him and one other guy. Um, And then they took over for me. And now, well, he actually was working as a morning anchor in Wisconsin, and he's actually left that job as well. But he had gotten very deep into his Christian faith. 
And when these things kind of hit me like a ton of bricks in the fall, I, I reached out to him just, and I hadn't talked to him regularly in a while. I had seen him at his wedding here when he was in Nashville, got married to a lovely woman named Morgan back in the summer. And so I reached out to him. I just had this feeling I needed to reach out to him. So I did. And I called him and I said, I laid out my case and said, here's what's going on. I'm lost. I'm really, I'm sad. I'm disappointed. I'm lonely. All of those kinds of things. And he gave me advice and he told me, start reading the Psalms, open the Bible and start reading the Psalms. And I had always thought that the Psalms were, you know, joyful songs and all of these things. And that's because I was a dormant Christian. And before that, I was too young to really know. Like when I was baptized, I was in high school and I wanted, you know, the Lord to enter my heart, but I didn't understand at that point what the Christian life fully meant. So I believed in God and then didn't live it. And then came September and he explained to me that many of the Psalms are lamentations. They are cries out not to be forsaken, not to be left behind, that you're in danger of falling into the pit, all of those kinds of things. And that mimicked what was going on in my life. So that very day, after I got off the phone with him, I read a psalm. Actually, I read a couple of psalms. And then I prayed right in the middle of the afternoon out loud and asked for help and asked to to pull me out of the mental state that I found myself in. And from that point forward, things began to change internally within me in terms of who I wanted to be and what I cared about. And it's the second part that led to this podcast disappearing after the Home Alone episode in December. And it kind of happened out of nowhere, and I didn't explain it to anyone. You know, I had said, hey, we're going to have the guy from Up and Vanished, whose name escapes me right now. We were going to have him on in January, and that didn't end up happening. And then I didn't end up doing the show in January, and I didn't end up doing the show in February. And this, we're near the end of March, and here I am on Good Friday to talk to you. And we are going to talk about Ready Player One, and we're going to talk about Barry, and we're going to talk about the Americans today, and maybe a little bit of Roseanne, and some other things that are going on. So this isn't a testimony podcast, but this is explaining what's happened and why. It is so easy in the business that I find myself in to become self-important to believe yourself to to have some level of fame or stardom or notoriety and then use that to just walk haughty throughout your life. And I don't know that I was as guilty of it as some, but I was more guilty of it than others. It was cool that people wanted my opinion on things. It was cool that people enjoyed the sound of my voice, that they found me funny or engaging or intelligent or entertaining or all of these kinds of things. And it fed a desire for more of the same. It fed a desire for me to start a podcast, to build my own brand because I wanted more people to care about my opinion because I'm better than they are. Or at least that's what I began to think late in the year was the cause. It wasn't how I felt then. It's how I felt about the past. It's how I felt about the old version of me that I'm still trying to shake because we all have a false self that we have to finally hand over if we truly want to try and follow God in the proper way. And I'm still on a daily basis fighting the things all of you out there are fighting, anger, jealousy, greed. And then the main one is pride. 
my pride got the better of me. It got the better of me in relationships. It got the better of me at work. It got the better of me in my podcast. And when it came to pop culture in particular, television and film, what happened to me in December was that all of a sudden I lost all of the passion that I had for this material. If you know me at all, you know that I was borderline obsessed with television and film in particular. Television first and film second. But I would binge watch stuff constantly. I was watching series and I I was trying to comment on shows. Like people would ask me about shows. And this is here's here's a confession for you. There have been many people, some that are listening to this podcast right now, who have come up to me in person in a studio setting or as friends in my life or whoever and asked me my opinion on some show or some movie. And I have told you and given you an opinion, positive or negative, and I never saw what I claimed to have seen. I based it upon critics that generally had similar opinions as mine because we are limited by what time we have in the day and how much we've seen. But I never, ever wanted somebody to think I had not seen everything. I did not want to say, hey, you know what? I haven't actually seen that yet. That's pride. That is my pride. I wanted you to think I was the end-all, be-all expert on everything that was going on in pop culture. And so I would limit and find a way to rationalize this lack of integrity so that I could do these things. Now, when I was on this podcast and I talked about these shows and things, that was not the case because I can't sit here and rattle off 10 or 15 minutes about a various or about a series or a film or anything to that uh, effect if I had not seen it. Maybe I had not seen it all, but I had seen enough to form an opinion and be able to talk about the story in an intelligent way. But when December hit and I stopped watching anything, I, the reason I did that Home Alone podcast is because in the month of December, I probably watched that movie 25 or 30 times. I just put it on in the background while I was doing things in my life. I was not watching new stuff. I didn't watch any of the sitcoms. You notice I stopped writing about This Is Us. It's because I stopped. I didn't watch it. I haven't even seen it since the last episode that we spoke of. And that was one episode before that mid-season break, the holiday break. And I was getting this stuff early and I wasn't even watching it. The Good Place, my favorite show on TV, I didn't actually finish the season until about three weeks ago. I know that stuns a lot of you. But if you've actually talked to me in 2018 in person, you know that when you've asked me about stuff, I haven't really had too much of an opinion. And those that know me well, those I consider friends, know that I wasn't watching anything. I lost all the passion in my heart and mind for the obsession and almost addiction that I had to scripted television and movies. It was gone. Like, I didn't want to watch anything. I was watching the same stuff on repeat every day, and there would be days where the television never even turned on. That's unfathomable for me, even a year ago. And I wondered if this passion would ever come back. All of a sudden, I'm reading devotionals, and I'm reading C.S. Lewis, and I'm reading the Bible, and I'm unable to read anything that's not theology or scripture-based. And this is stuff that I would have mocked years and years ago. And just been like, what are you doing? Like, those books are incredibly boring. Well, I found out that wasn't the case. When my heart changed, there was, there's this saying that I heard a pastor say in a podcast that I heard a couple of months back. Actually, I think it was late in 2017. He said, be careful 
when you open the door to Jesus because once he gets into your place, he has a habit of taking over. And that's kind of what happened. Doesn't mean I'm perfect or better than anybody out there. In fact, I'm sure I'm worse than many of you. I may have used this quote towards the end of the year. I may not have, but I've said it on Twitter, certainly, and I've said it uh, in polite company, that I'm not the man that I want to be, but I'm so thankful and grateful that I'm not the man that I used to be. I feel like I'm on the right path. I'm trying to follow God's will in everything that I do. And when I lost passion for this, I felt that there had to be a reason. And as such, I needed to embrace it. And so I didn't come on here and try to force myself to watch stuff in a time when I did not have the passion for it. And so the podcast disappeared. And there was also the reality in my head and heart that I wasn't doing this podcast because I was having fun doing it. I was doing it to try and become famous, to try and be important, to try and do something that would make whoever's out there listening to me right now see me in some kind of higher light or as some kind of beacon of pop culture knowledge or whatever it might be. And again, that comes back to pride. Pride, which C.S. Lewis calls the ultimate sin, it's a gateway to everything else. When you really look at pride deep and you think about all of the other evils that occur in the world, so many of them can be traced back to an abundance of pride. So my pride had to be killed. And it's still a daily battle. Believe me, there are days I, I will be on Twitter and I will think about what tweet is going to get me the most likes. What tweet is going to get me the most quotes? What tweet is going to get me the most new followers? What can I say that's better than anybody else at this point in time? What's the perfect zinger? What's the perfect this? What's the perfect that? How can I become more important than the guy next to me? And as faith has taken over my life, I have cared so much less about anything that I am doing other than trying to develop the qualities of Jesus, whether that's kindness, humility, generosity, a giving spirit, courage, character, perseverance, a gentle nature, all of the things that I used to rail about. You remember the third episode of this podcast where I dropped a bunch of expletives and I railed about the Emmys and how they got all these things wrong. I'm embarrassed, folks, by that podcast, looking back on it. I have a hard time using foul language anymore at all in any capacity. Not that I think that if you do, there's anything technically wrong with it, with the exception of a few words, and they're all related to Christ, not anything colloquial or anything that we deem to be unacceptable. It's just... All of a sudden, I didn't want that stuff anymore. Same, same reason that I've been able to lose all this weight, which is now at 157 pounds, by the way. Weighed in six days ago, 213 pounds. This journey began towards the end of February of 2017 at 370 pounds. I went into stores and bought merchandise and from brands that run traditionally small that I used to laugh about ever being able to fit into. And I bought them in size large. 
and they fit. And I'm stunned. And it's easy again to get prideful there because people are just like, oh, what work you've put in. Oh, how much you've done. All glory to Christ. All glory to God. He presented me with this gift. He gave it to me. And it wasn't something I begged for for years. It was something he handed to me because it revealed him. When it came down to me opening that Bible in September, all of a sudden I realized that what had taken place over the last five or six months, which is nothing short of a miracle when you think of just how much weight I lost, how unhealthy I was, how terribly I felt, how little energy I had, all of that, it just washed away. And it came to me that if I had sat there and planned to lose all this weight, if I had planned out this diet and sought out all of these personal trainers and how many pills and all these other things, it would have failed miserably. This was divinely given to me to reveal once and for all who the source of everything in my life is. Jesus is responsible for all that I have. He's responsible for all that I am. He's responsible for all that I will ever accomplish. And when you come to that point, when you look at things that you did that tried to build up your own confidence about yourself or things that you looked at and said, how can I be more famous because of this? You run from those things. And so I ran from this podcast and television and film lost all their, all their passion, you know, everything that I cared about. I had multiple bookshelves full of Blu-rays. I've sold almost half of them off, and I've got another large box that I'm getting rid of. I'm keeping somewhere around 40 or 50 total. I have considered canceling subscriptions to things that I need in order to do my job. I have you know, movie screenings that I'm blessed enough to be invited to by the film company so that I can review their films. I passed on about 90% of them over the last three to four months. This week I saw Ready Player One. I went to see a few others, and I paid to see a couple of movies. But really, the last few that I can even point to, The Last Jedi is one of the last like three or four movies I saw in the theaters. I saw I, Tanya and a couple of other things, but I didn't even see most of the Best Picture nominees this year and didn't care and didn't watch one second of the Oscars and didn't care and didn't live tweet about it and didn't care. I didn't watch the Emmys. I did not watch the Emmys, folks. I was on... I think it was a national championship was the night of the Emmys. It was either a national title that weekend that I was in Atlanta with Clay or when we were on Radio Row. I can't remember which right offhand. But I didn't watch it at all. And I remember Clay asking me the next day, hey, is there anything about the Emmys that we need to talk about? And I said, well, I'm going to have to look it up because I hadn't seen it. It's an amazing thing to come here and, and sit here and tell you this, and I hope this hasn't been boring to you. But it was gone. And then all of a sudden, about a month ago, I sat down and I finished that Good Place season. And I caught up on a few of my other favorite comedies, Speechless, which I just absolutely adore, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, just a couple of shows, Goldberg's. I wasn't watching any drama. I tried to watch Godless, and it bored me to tears. And I know that that's not because it's a boring show. It was because at that moment, my heart wasn't in it. It looked stunning. Casting was great. I just didn't care. This week I wrote about the Americans. That I care about. I'm going to be writing about Westworld, which I care about. And that is one other contentious thing here that needs to be mentioned, which is I've had some people say, hey, where are your Billions reviews? 
something else has happened to me, which is content that used to be acceptable to me is now something I don't want in my life at all. Billions was such a fun show, and I had a great time writing about it last year. But the language and the sexual content and just the overall tenor of that show, it's just not something I want to waste my time with anymore. And again, that does not make me better than anybody. It's just a personal choice, and it's a feeling within my heart that I am better off just not experiencing that myself. Some people can handle it. It's just something I've chosen not to do. So at least for now, I'm not watching Billions, so I can't write about Billions. And there are other series that fall within that very same construct. You know, I watched Barry. I screened the first four episodes of the season. And it honestly, the language wasn't too bad. It wasn't particularly violent. It wasn't particularly sexual. So I was able to watch that. This week I went and saw Game Night, which I had kind of wanted to see for since before it came out. But I passed on the screening because the night of the screening, I was about to leave the house and I just had a feeling, no, you know, you don't need to go do that. Because I figured it would be lowbrow and full of sex and full of language and all that. And then I read a, a snippet that said it's actually highbrow and doesn't go for the lowest common denominator, and it's very funny. So I saw it on Movie Pass this week before the Ready Player One screening, and I did enjoy it. There was some content that they didn't need, but I did enjoy it. What has happened over the past couple of weeks, if you notice, I wasn't writing a whole lot over the last few months either. It was all gone. The inspiration was gone, and I hadn't been watching anything, so I wasn't going to lie to you about what was happening in my life from a pop culture perspective. But what's happened over the last few weeks is I'm starting to get a little bit of the passion back. I'm starting to get a little bit interested in writing again. And I think it's because in order for me to take whatever the next step was with Christ, he had to remove my idol. And I am willing now to confess and admit openly that television and pop culture had become an idol. I cared about it more than just about anything else. Thought about it when I woke up. Thought about it when I went to sleep. Constantly hated the fact that anybody could be a bigger fan of anything than me. When I saw other people writing articles, it would irritate me because I wanted to be the first and I wanted mine to be the best. And if yours had more retweets, then that was going to upset me. That was going to bother my day. And I feel like as I've written a couple of things this week or a couple of things over the last few weeks, as a matter of fact, it's starting to come back, but it's coming back in a balance. It's coming back in a fashion where it's in its proper place, meaning it's secondary to everything else that I'm trying to focus on in my life. And so that brings us to why Outkick the Culture returns today. Because within that balance, I wanted to sit down and do this today for the first time in a long time to explain, but also just because I felt like talking about stuff again. I don't know the future of this show. I don't know my future five minutes from now. I know that I'm being called. I feel like I'm being called to do something like this, but I'm not sure it's going to look exactly like this. Something like this, the structure may change. Something is coming, and you'll be the first to know once I get the word from the only person that I listen to anymore. So I've been kind of just caught in a season of waiting and in a season of trying to listen. 
and finally stopping running my own mouth and just living for someone other than myself. And I hope that that makes sense to some of you. So let's talk a little bit at least about some of the things that I have watched over the last month or two. I mentioned The Good Place. The Good Place is the best show on television. And it was interesting because it's such a show that spoke to where I was at the time with the kind of spiritual struggle and the heaven and hell arguments and, and all the things that go on within that show. But the brilliance of that show remains that it goes places faster than you expect it to go because it has somewhere else planned. It's It stunned me that Eleanor Shellstrop stood up early in the first season and told everyone in The Good Place, which I put in air quotes, that she was there by mistake. I thought that would be the reveal at the end of the entire series because so many shows are about hiding some secret that we share with that character that would make everything so much easier on the show, but that doesn't get revealed because that's the reason the show exists. And after that confession, after she stood up and said that, I wondered, where is this show going? And then it twisted at the end of the first season. And then I wondered, well, how are they going to move from here? And they rebooted it and started it in season two. And then it twisted three or more times, three or four more times in the second year. And it ended so impressively with with the end of season two. And I'm talking in vague terms because I desperately want you all to watch this show. I think it's the smartest show on TV. I think it's remarkably funny without even trying to be. I think the entire cast is a beautiful thing when you look at chemistry. I've said before, Ted Danson may be the best television actor of all time. I think it's him or Brian Cranston. And that's no knock on the Gandolfinis and folks like that. They're all exquisite. I'm just talking about, think about Ted Danson's entire career in television. Cheers. Becker. Curb Your Enthusiasm. And now what he's doing on The Good Place. He was also on CSI towards the end of that show's run. And he's good in everything. And then Cranston, of course, yes, he played Walter White. But he was also the father on Malcolm in the Middle. So he was able to play both drama and comedy to the highest possible degree. Most folks are lucky to get that one role. Kiefer Sutherland, Jack Bauer, James Gandolfini, Tony Soprano. You know, all of that... You get that one big role, and that can make you. you know, that's, that can be the thing that you're remembered for. A lot of our favorite shows on TV are basically the equivalent of one-hit wonders for many of the members of that cast. And a lot of times, it's the leads. Because it didn't necessarily lead you to another perfect job. Because that perfect script doesn't come around all that long. But then there's so many shows now that there might be a better possibility of landing one except that you can also easily land into a bunch of bad ones but that's those are the two guys that I put up and I'm probably overlooking some folks when I think of best television actors of all time those are the two guys I think Cranston could come back and do a third show and it would be super successful anyway I mean the season one of Sneaky Pete he was certainly good in that as well but when those two guys are affiliated with something also Arthur Frobisher Ted Danson played Arthur Frobisher on season one of Damages which was spectacular. So him being affiliated with A Good Place made me care. It being created by Michael Schur made me care. 
and it has not let me down. And again, I'm speaking so vaguely about it because if you have not seen it, spoiling it for you is just unfair because there's so much to get out of this show that I think you should watch it. And the second half, I'd sat there and binged it one day, the second half of the second season, when, it, when, it was, when I felt, okay, I actually want to do this again. And I just loved it. I loved all of it. I loved Maya Rudolph popping in there towards the end of the year. I loved everything that was happening within that show. There's so much to dissect and enjoy about The Good Place. So much to think about that you can then apply to your own life. Like, what if you were given a second chance? What if when you were supposed to die, you didn't? After you had lived a life that was not going to put you where you wanted to be in the afterlife. But you did not know that. But you had a near-death experience. Would it change you? Questions like that, thought-provoking stuff like that. So I enjoyed it. And then I watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which just makes me laugh. And I watched Speechless, which has treated cerebral palsy so effectively because it doesn't constantly rely on preaching to you about it. We know how debilitating and how problematic and just how nasty it is. And so most of the time we see the J.J. character trying to live as normally as he can. And his parents, despite being eccentric and a little bit weird, are genuinely loving people who are very individualistic. And the kids are funny. So I enjoyed that show. So I was able to come back to that show. The Good Place, if there's one thing I'm saying, hey, you've got to go see this, it's a good place. And on the drama side, it's The Americans, which came back this week. I have the first three episodes, what they've given me. I've only seen the first one. I will watch probably the other two maybe this weekend. The season premiere, which is the final season premiere, and this is a truncated season, meaning not as long as usual, 10 episodes to send this thing off. The season premiere, coming off of the weakest season, I would say, is, is a pretty, isn't, isn't a hot take. And it, look, the penultimate season of a drama like The Americans, they couldn't play much of their hand. They had to put everything in position so that they could go out in a blaze of glory. And judging by Dead Hand, the name of the episode here that aired on Wednesday night as the show returned, judging by that, Joe, Joe uh, Weisberg and Joel Fields are indeed about to put forth something special. Because this was about as good an hour of drama as I've seen in a long time. The music alone was worth the price of admission. The tunes that they used and how they reflected what was actually happening on screen. If you happen to read my review, I think I spent more time or as much time speaking about the history and lyrics of the various songs that were used during this 77-minute episode than I did about the story itself. Because it was all so fluid and so perfectly put together. This was a work of art. This was as good as it gets. The idea that Philip, who had gotten out of the game and you see him in this happy-go-lucky life outside of the spy game, even as you see his daughter is now fully invested in it and Elizabeth is doing even more than she's ever done before and in having to do more dangerous things than ever before, that Oleg Burov, who came all the way back from Russia, left his new son and left his wife because he was asked to do so by Arkady Ivanovich, came back to D.C., met with Philip, and told him about Dead Hand, about all of the things that could be happening around this armed summit, and then basically said, we need you. And now Philip has been tasked to spy 
on his wife, Elizabeth, a master spy in her own right, pitting husband against wife in a way we've never seen before on this show, is so unbelievably compelling and wide-ranging because it can affect every other relationship on the show, whether it's Stan Beeman and Philip as friends, or we saw that dinner party. And I think the dinner party is something that might have gone overlooked because not much was happening except that Paige was showing she's definitely a political activist at this point as she was kind of jesting and jarring and jousting with Beeman. But if you saw all the smiles and everybody laughing and having a good time, and juxtaposed with almost everything else that happened in the episode with anybody not named Philip. You saw all of these people put together in one room, with the exception of Burov, who's now in the same city. They've gotten all the main characters back in the same city at the same time, for, all centered around one event, this armed summit, which took place in December of 1987. And in, as the season starts, we're about eight weeks away from that event. You can tell how intertwined all these characters are. So when you take Philip and Elizabeth and pit them potentially against one another or even somebody, even one person has asked for them to be pitted against one another. You have the potential for explosions all across that table with everybody that we saw. We still don't know Renee's motives, but she doesn't like the fact that Beeman is very clandestine about what he does. So that continues to lead credence to the idea that she might not be who she appears. Dennis is Dennis, but Aderholt's going to get caught up in whatever Stan gets caught up in. Paige is so young at what she's doing, and she's doing it at a most dangerous time because the, co- the country that she's working for is potentially about to schism or cut in half between those that don't want progress away from old-style virulent communism and want Gorbachev out of office and those that are sort of in favor of this potential dead hand for Star Wars trade-off between Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan. So there's danger to be found there. Philip tried to tell Elizabeth at the end of the episode. You could tell. He wanted to tell her what he had been asked to do. He wanted to tell her how dangerous everything was around her. And she was so stressed out and so tired and so frustrated, I think, because now she's going through almost all this alone and can't tell him about any of it, that she sort of took it out on him and stopped him from saying it and said, hey, we'll talk about it in the morning. But the chances they talk about it in the morning, I would say, are not very good. Means that he may end up actually doing it, at least for a short time. I think in the end, there will be a reconciliation. I don't know exactly how it's going to end. But we are getting to the point where the finale is going to come around eight weeks in story time from where we actually are right now at that arm summit. And we know it's in 87 because the arm summit was in December. But even before we heard about the arm summit, when we saw that theater and we saw those three movie posters, Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise, Wall Street, and The Pickup Artist, we could tell. Wall Street was coming soon. It came out on December the 13th in 87. Pickup Artist came out in September. It was now showing. Nerds in Paradise came out in July, so it was still on. There weren't as many big-time releases at the time, so it's not out of the ordinary that Nerds 2 would have still been on you know, six to eight weeks after it released. I actually enjoyed that film a lot as a kid. I was a big fan of Nerds 2. I had not even seen Nerds 1 when I saw Nerds 2, and I saw it several times before I actually saw the original. But you could tell then, okay, we're in September. We're in the fall. 
and Paige has just gone back to school and she's got this professor that's talking about missiles and all of these things. So you've got that going on. And you've got Paige that's a new spy that don't, that either was made or was just being harassed by this naval officer that wanted to take her out. And so Elizabeth had to do what Elizabeth had to do to get her college ID back, which was stab her or stab this guy inside of the neck with a knife. Tough way to go for that guy. But either he was the creepiest dude ever in terms of I'll give you your college ID back when you show up or he didn't trust her in any respect. I don't know. I couldn't tell watching it which one I thought that it was, but the fact that it could have been either one is why he had to die. But I think either one, he would have died because Elizabeth is very protective over Paige. But this was just such a great episode, and it set the stage for so many possible directions that they could go before we get to this final end game, culminating around the Arms Summit that will take place in December. And we've got Burov in D.C., which means we are going to get, can't wait, the Oleg Barov Stan Beeman reunion scene where they see each other again and they talk and maybe they even hug at the end of this thing or at least shake hands like they've kind of been friends and adversaries at different times but I think that both of them have gone through the same stresses maybe not simultaneously but they understand one another even if they're coming from different places and there's a there's a divide that gets bridged between the two of them that is unlike anything that's gotten bridged between the Americans and the Russians outside of that on the show. There's a constant us versus them mentality, except with Stan and Oleg, who are both in intelligence on the opposite sides, showing that there is some sense of unity to be found here. Weisberg and Fields did some interviews in the weeks leading up to the final season and said, look, this show is very political, but we do it in unexpected ways. And that's true. I've never felt they're preaching at me. I've never been able to pull for Russia as a country, but I have been able to pull for individual Russians on the show because they're all shades of gray and they're all humans. And the Americans have done bad things on the show. The Russians have done a lot of bad things on the show. It doesn't seem to be necessarily anti-capitalist. It doesn't seem to be pushing any particular agenda, except that it has not at any point glorified communism. So it has been political without preaching one thing or another. It's been subtle, and I think coming at it from different angles, whoever you are and whatever you believe, you can pull from it enough to back your own theory unless you're a diehard, you know, dyed-in-the-wool communist. But we got nine more episodes. I'm going to write about each one of them. I'm looking forward to it. If you did not watch the opener, it's brilliant. If you have not watched the show, it's the best show that you have not watched. It's the best show of the century that you have not watched. It will go down as one of the top 10 shows of this century. And if you think about all of the great shows this century and how much we've gotten through this peak TV time, that's impressive. I think it will be in a lot of people's top five lists. It may well be in mine. So now's the time, if you have not watched it, to go ahead and start. Just start from the very beginning. First season might be a little bit slow for you. Stick to it. It is as rewarding and deep an experience and well-crafted an experience as you're going to find anywhere on TV. Language isn't terrible. There are some very tough violent scenes at times, but it's not like riddled with violence. It's just so smart and so well-written and so patient in the way that it lays out its story. And it's built such wonderful characters and shown the acting talent of Matthew Reese who's just incredible. Carrie Russell, who we already knew was great, but my goodness, she's utterly phenomenal on this show. Noah Emmerich, 
all of these folks, Margot Martindale that has joined the show, who's just good in everything that she does, leading to her being called character actor Margot Martindale and BoJack Horseman. It's because of how, she, how good she is in everything, whether it's The Good Wife or Justified or this. Anything she touches, she's going to be superb in. And, of course, Frank Langella, who we've seen on this show through the times. Costa Ronan is a revelation as Barov. And I don't think we ever knew Barov was going to be this big a character when he first arrived. But, man, we have been blessed with that guy being around as long as he has. Lev Gorn is hanging around right now. Uh, Holly Taylor is growing up right before our eyes. She's becoming a better actress, and we're seeing her more as an adult at this stage in her run. There's just so much here, guys. Same thing with A Good Place. I'm just telling you right now, look, I haven't watched a ton of stuff as of late. I'm picking and choosing now. I'm watching what I want to watch. I'm watching the things that are worth my time because I have other things now that take priority over this. So you better be good or I'm going to move on from you. So the Americans in a good place in their various categories stand alone right now as the two shows that I urge you all to go find, watch, enjoy, talk about, analyze, and get yourself caught up in. HBO's Barry is good. I don't know that it's great, but I like it. I think Hader is very good, and this is the first time where you look at Bill Hader and say, okay, he might be about to break out of this SNL show. It sounds like it's a real detriment to say it's been hard for him and he's gotten typecast and all this, but maybe more so than anybody that left SNL. Whenever I see Bill Hader, I think of his characters on SNL. I think about the impressions that he did or the game show hosting or Stefan or Carvel or whatever it is. And it's been hard because I'm just like, well, that's just this goofy dude that sort of looks a little bit like Jim Carrey and a little bit like Michael C. Hall. But he's a guy that's a film, loves film. Any, any interview you ever see, he loves acting. He loves entertainment. He loves film. He loves television. He pays attention, studies up. And he's a good dude, so I root for him. And here he's playing this leading character in Barry, this HBO show that he created along with Alec Berg, who's responsible partially at least for Mike Judge, along with Mike Judge for Silicon Valley, and also worked on Seinfeld. And the premise of this show is very cool. Barry Berkman is a hitman in kind of a small, low-rent Midwestern town who hates his life. He was a former Marine and good at it, and he comes back, and now he kills people for money, and we're told most of them are, are bad guys, and it seems like that's the case. He's not, like, killing good people, from what we can tell. But it's an empty life, and he's lonely, and he's depressed and doesn't seem to care about very much, but it's not analyzed this. He goes to L.A. for a job, and as he's sort of scouting and paying attention, he finds out that the guy that he's scouting is an actor, and he follows him into that world and discovers he wants to be an actor himself, and he loves it, and he's passionate about it, and he cares about it. And so he then has to juxtapose and deal with balancing the duties of being a hitman paying the bills to taking an acting class with these people that he encounters in the pilot episode. And it's good. Sarah Goldberg is good. Henry Winkler, who plays kind of the instructor on the show, is just tremendously fantastic. And I said this in my review. Henry Winkler's a guy who's like, look, you're going to think of the Fonz first when you think of Henry Winkler. We get that. But think about some of the other roles that he's played that are more understated and aren't main characters. And you're going to see... Also, guest starring Henry Winkler, not even him in the opening credits. 
Think about Barry Zuckercorn on Arrested Development or his character on Parks and Recreation, The Doctor. Those are the characters where you really saw how good Henry Winkler could be because he could play this deadpan, simultaneously like creepy and manipulative, but at the same time oblivious to it character. He could play it so effectively. And here he is playing this instructor that's not a particularly good actor that's going for minor roles in like television shows, but he's you know sucking money out of all these hopefuls in L.A. And he's a little bit creepy here too. But he's so good. And so he was perfectly cast. Steven Root also perfectly cast as kind of Barry's handler, partner, the guy that kind of keeps him into the or keeps him in the hitman game. And Steven Root is another one of those great television actors that you don't necessarily know his name, but when I start telling you the roles he's played, you're like, Oh yeah. He was the eccentric judge and justified, the one that didn't wear pants all the time. He was Jimmy James in news radio. He was Milton in office space. He's done it all. I mean, this dude's been around. And anytime he's cast in something, he gives it his all and he's super at it. And that is the case again in Barry. So you've got Hater and you've got Winkler and you've got Steven Root. And then you've got a kind of a crop of folks that you don't know maybe as well, including Sarah Goldberg. And it all kind of plays together into this well-organized, unspectacular but very satisfying and entertaining little show that is a comedy, but it's dark. I compared it to Gross Point Blank, which was not as dark as Barry, but I, that's the only thing that I felt when I was watching Barry. I'm like, I a little bit of Gross Point Blank in this, which is a great movie, by the way, you should see with John Cusack and Minnie Driver and that came out back in the 90s. And if you haven't seen it, you should. Dan Aykroyd's fantastic in that film, too. But Barry is sort of unique. And it's on after a show that's not unique in Silicon Valley. And people are like, oh, I would need your opinion on Silicon Valley. I got that email or that DM over the last week. I will give it to you when I watch it because I have not seen the premiere yet. So I can't talk about it. And maybe I'll do that this weekend. I don't know. It's a show that I kind of, you know, some people will come up and talk about how much they love it. And I like it, but I've told you before, and I said on this show before, I can tell you what's going to happen basically before it does because it's the same formula over and over and over and over. It is these guys who are brilliant end up with some wonderful idea and can't get out of their own way. They trip over their own shoelaces and lose it. Then just when it looks like all is lost, somehow they slip through the eye of the needle, stand back up and come up with an even better idea monetize it a little bit. You see them kind of celebrate for about an episode and then they trip over their shoelaces again because they never retied them in the first place. What I need at some point is for them to take their shoes off so they can stop tripping over their own shoelaces. And it hasn't happened yet. It's rinse and repeat. Storyline after storyline after storyline. So any great idea that they come up with, the characters on the show, I mean, not the creators or the writers, Anything that they come up with that's good, I know it's going to be short-lived because that's what this show is. It's stumble and fall and pick yourself back up and stumble and fall and pick yourself back up and stumble and fall and pick yourself back up and stumble and fall and pick yourself back up. And at some point, I get it. So I moved on. But I, I do enjoy the show. But I wrote about it for one year and I realized week after week I was writing the same thing over and over again. And then it just sort of dawned on me, that's what this show is. It is one 
very simple story formula repeated multiple times each season now for five years and I just gotta admit as much as I like the actors on that show as much talent as I see on it as much as I enjoy watching them in that in that world I get it I understand where we're headed here so I don't find it to be appointment television the way that I do something like the Americans or something like uh, something like the good place I hope that makes sense to you I told you I saw game night and I liked it. Um, very surprised when Chad Lale, who you may know as Gunner in NXT that also worked in TNA. I knew him as Phil Shatter and NWA Wildside and various independent wrestling shows that I did in North and South Carolina. I wouldn't call him a friend, but I've done you know many shows with the guy and I was around when he first started. Way different look than he has now. When Chad Lale appeared on screen... I had to do a double take because no one actually in the industry had told me that he was in the movie. And I waited through the credits to make sure that I was right and that it was him and not just somebody that looked like him. But indeed, it was him. There's Gunner going through the side of that airplane, you know, potentially about to kill Rachel McAdams. I couldn't believe it. I was so happy for him, though. It was just so cool because he's such a nice guy. And he worked really, really hard to, you know, get himself in the spot that he has in pro wrestling with some pitfalls along the way. And now, you know, living where he lives and being as close to he, as he was during the filming, I just love that, that that dude was able to get to do that. I thought it was so cool. Like when I saw it, I was just like, wow, man, Phil got to do that. Or Chad got to do that in his, in his real life. But I always call him Phil Shatter. I have a hard time calling him Gunner even just because I knew him as the universal soldier. And I was just I was so happy for him. And, you know, that's another thing that, going back to the very start of this podcast and me kind of laying all this out for you. That's something else that pride does. It makes it hard for you to feel good about what others are doing in their lives. And that comes from jealousy and all these things. And it also comes from just wanting to see other people fail because it makes you feel better about yourself. To call that ugly and nasty and something to try and flee from as fast as possible is a gigantic understatement. And it was one of my biggest problems. I hated seeing people do well. I couldn't stand it. I was the guy that wanted the car crash, but didn't want to be in the car. Like, it was it was a problem. And I still deal with it from time to time. But I've gotten it under control now. So when I saw, hey, Chad Leo was in that film, the same me a year and a half ago would have been like, man, I wish I could have done that. I should have done that. Screw that guy. I was actually able to say, man, that's really cool. I haven't talked to him or anything like that. But I just, I was able to feel good because I'm just like, that's good. That dude got money. He got paid. You know, wrestling business is hard to make a living in. It really is until you get to, to Vince McMahon. And the chances of that, when you consider how many various independent wrestling promotions there are and how many people dream of getting to the WWE, it's like getting to the NBA in a lot of ways. Just how hard he worked and to be in a movie of that caliber with those those kind of stars. I was I was able to feel good for him. And it was at that moment that I realized that my pride is starting to lose this battle. Finally, after all this time, God is starting to win this war for me. He suffered for me. Christ died on the cross for me. 
was reborn, rose from the dead to pay my sin debt. But he's still saving me every day. By his grace, I'm here. By his grace, I'm forgiven. And by his grace, people like Chad Lale got to do something really cool. And by his grace and the growth and the just the lessons that he continues to teach me day after day, I am now able to feel good for Chad for being able to do that without having to place myself into that scene. Again, all glory to God for that. It's something I wouldn't have even cared about a year ago today. A year ago today, I wouldn't have mentioned Chad Lale on this podcast, who none, who a lot of you probably don't even know. I wouldn't have mentioned it because I wouldn't have wanted to give him any uh, any future advertising because I'd have already been quietly jealous and covetous of who he was and what he was doing. Pride's an angry, it's an angry, nasty, ugly, selfish thing. And it's a constant thing. And it's a battle that you have to fight every day. It's not something that all of a sudden you just defeat and it's gone. I pray for humility every single night. And because of that, I know I'm still not humble. Truly being humble means not even recognizing the need to be humble. And that is almost impossible. But so is infallibility. So I go to the only person that is truly infallible and just ask for a little bit more of the good stuff each day to get me through the trials and tribulations of that day. Sorry, I just kind of went back on you there. All right, one more thing. Ready Player One is very good. I liked it a lot. And I wasn't particularly like blown away by any of the trailers. I didn't think that I was going to love it. It's really good. I had a lot of fun watching it. The story is not particularly deep. I need to read the Ernest Cline novel from 2011 that, is, that it's based on. I'm very eager to do that now. But I just had so much fun watching it. And so much of entertainment and so much of the world is negative. That me smiling and being able to laugh and get into all the nostalgia of all of the things that you see, whether it's Bigfoot or Back to the Future or all of these different things, the Atari 2600 or various movies from the past and all the things that Spielberg employs in this movie just made me happy. Like you leave the film and you just like it. Like it was just, that was not a slog. It was 138 minutes, but it was very, very fast-paced throughout much. The acting was sort of secondary, but not bad. Olivia Cook and Ty Sheridan had good chemistry together. Ben Mendelsohn, who you know from from Bloodline, the only thing really good about that show in its entire run. Uh, he's very good in his villain role. He was also in Rogue One, if you saw that. Mark Rylance, who plays the guy who creates the fictional game world, the Oasis, in which the movie's kind of based... James Halligan, he's a star of this thing, and he's not in it all that much, but when he is, he's just impossible to look away from because he's playing this socially awkward guy, really Steve Wozniak to another level, but there's no Steve Jobs around him. There's another guy that's sort of his partner in crime played by Simon Pegg, but they're not really adversarial 
and it's not like Simon Pegg wants to be a business guy and Halligan doesn't. It's it's not that at all. It's it's a difference in philosophy. Whereas Ogden Morrow, who is Simon Pegg's character, kind of kind of splits away and leaves because he doesn't like the fact that people are losing their lives into this fictional world. And that's sort of the story of the whole thing is Halligan himself was someone that was socially awkward and lonely and lived his life through video games and television and movies and music. I can relate. Heck, I can relate to it over the last few years. It was what I described to you off the start of this, getting obsessed and addicted by television shows and films and video games and trying to use that to fulfill things in your life that are unfulfilled that can only really be fulfilled by one place. At least that's how I've come to believe it and how I will always say it to anyone who asks me. But it was on his pedestal, and it was keeping him away from other people. And it's a reason why he was afraid to kiss a girl or any of those you know, kinds of things. So he creates this world that is sort of, in 2045, when we see the film, it's basically World of Warcraft and EverQuest and Second Life and all of that rolled into one. And everyone plays it. Not just the kids, not just the gamers, housewives, the elderly. Everybody plays it. This is a world where the resources have been depleted. He talks about, or they talk about bandwidth riots when they're explaining it off the top, which are things that if you read Wired and things like that, a lot of folks expect is going to happen over the next 20 years, especially in some of the lower developed countries as they fall further and further behind because of not having access to the internet. So in this world, people escape a reality that's not all that great. It's not a whole lot of money. It's not a whole lot of resources. So you go there and you can be what you want to be. You can be what gender you want to be. You can be a superstar if you want to be. You can be a former character. You can build Batman. You can be whatever you want to be. And you can engage in whatever you want to engage in in this fictional world. You can make money there. You can find love there. You can kill things there. You can do everything you can do in the real world, but the consequences are only within that world. But within that world... People have lost themselves to the extent that they identify more with their avatar or their character in that world than they do with themselves. Interpersonal relationships are strained. This lead character, Wade Watts, who we meet off the start, played by Ty Sheridan, hasn't even met his best friend in the game, who we meet late in the film in actuality. Most of the relationships within the game, just like if you've ever played a multiplayer online role-playing game for any length of time, you end up clanning up or meeting up with people and you end up seeing them every day in a game and you'll hang out and you'll even you know talk about your lives maybe in chat windows and things like that. But you've never met these people. You don't know who they are. This beautiful buxom redhead avatar that you're staring at, that you're fantasizing about, could be a four-year-old or it could be a 90-year-old man. You have no idea what's actually behind that screen and really you don't want to know. You just want to believe that what you're seeing in front of you is reality. So he creates this world. And then before he dies, he decides he's going to, inside this world, place three separate keys as part of three separate challenges. And those keys collectively open a door that leads to an Easter egg, which is certainly something that you've heard if you're in video game culture or you've watched movies and paid attention to things happening in the background. You're like, oh, you missed this. We'll go back and watch it. It's an Easter egg. Well, the ultimate Easter egg in the oasis is the oasis when you find the easter egg you get unilateral control 
over the trillion dollar plus industry and the Oasis and all the software, you become the guy. Basically, you become God in a second world that's become more important than the first world that is actually ruled by God. So then it becomes a quest movie. And pretty much the whole thing is there are people called Gunters, short for Egg Hunters. Wade Watts is one of them. And Parzival, which is the name of his avatar, that are searching for this to get to the end, to escape whatever their real reality is, or just because they want to control the Oasis or want to change it or want to do this or want to do that. And then there's a villain group led by the Ben Mendelsohn character that's basically a rich guy who has an entire staff of people that do nothing but try to find these keys to get to this egg because he wants to control the Oasis and thereby control the world and control all the money and all the things that go within it. The ecosystem, sell advertising, all of that. It's not really an anti-corporate message. It's an anti-greed message, if anything. And it doesn't matter whether or not you have money. You can be greedy. Believe me, because I'm guilty of it, as are all of you at different times or maybe constantly in your own lives. I think we're all fighting greed the same way we're fighting pride, whether we know it or not. So that kind of becomes it. It's It's the folks that are looking for that. And then there's people that are in the world that are just in the world. But many of them are looking for these keys. And so the story is finding these keys, which have been there for years and years, and nobody's even found one because they've never even completed the first challenge. And you do it by hints that are within the world that Haugen has laid there for you to find. And maybe the coolest thing is there's an archive that's basically a giant library of video of his entire life that shows like the inner workings of his mind and things that happen within his life, actual, like not even recreations, but it's almost like it's a mirror to what to his past. And in those, you can kind of discover what it takes to get through these various challenges. So that's it. It's a race to this egg. And within this, we spend more time in the video game world than we do in the real world. And so there's a lot of voice acting to be found <clears throat> as opposed to a lot of actual acting. But the actual acting is fine when it's necessary. When you're in the game world, you're just having fun. You're seeing all of this stuff the coolest thing in the whole film to me, and I'll give this one away, and this will be the only one I give away, is there's a poster in one of the rooms when they're just in the middle of a dialogue sequence, and it says, re-elect Mayor Goldie Wilson. And it is the exact poster from Back to the Future. That's just one example of thousands within this thing. There are Easter eggs planted in this film constantly. Like there's the stuff that's overt, like the Bigfoot truck in front of you or Batman. And then there's stuff in the background that if you know that particular piece of nostalgia, it'll jump out to you. It will leap out to you. That is so cool for somebody like me that grew up around the time where the character in the film that created the Oasis did. And thus, a lot of what he loved is stuff that I grew up on, just like he did. And so all the references worked for me. This film is not for everybody because if you don't get the references, if you're too young to get the references, a lot of the charm is going to be lost on you. And if you're not a gamer or have never cared about games, then the game world either is not, it's not even going to be lost on you. You're just not going to understand the ecosystem. You're not going to understand the coins. You're not going to understand the avatar concepts. Like a lot of it is just going to go over your head and you're just going to either have to be visually treated to what is just an awesome visual experience or you're just not going to dig it on the same level. So I venture to believe that this film despite the fact that some might think it was written for like 10 to 20 year olds it's really written for people in their 30s and 40s 
or maybe even a little bit older. It doesn't mean you're not going to enjoy it as a teenager, but it does mean that you're going to have to end up looking up these references later on, and it's going to be hard for you to really contextualize watching on the big screen all of what you see. It's something that you'd have to own on Blu-ray and stop and say, okay, what's that, and then go Google it and find it. There'll probably be some database. Somebody will take enough time to sit down for weeks and weeks and lay out all of the references, and there'll be a website that'll make this easy. I guarantee that's going to happen because this is the internet and this is 2018, and a lot of people have too much time on their hands. But if you know the references, and if you're a Spielberg fan and you know the kind of action sci-fi fantasy he's capable of that you have not seen from him in such a long time, this is such a treat. It's almost magic. When you see the Back to the Future DeLorean, you lose your mind. When you see this character from cartoons or this character from an 80s movie or this Atari 2600 game or whatever it is, it's just, it takes you back to a place of innocence. And at that moment, you see your own childhood. And at that moment, you can actually put yourself in the position of the characters on screen that are largely younger than you are. There's not a bunch of 39-year-olds. Like, Ty Sheridan's not 39. (laughs) Olivia Cook's not 39. Samantha and Wade Watts are, you know, teenagers. So you can then, because of you're looking at the nostalgia, I can become a teenager because in the nostalgia and the world that, that that brings me back to, I'm their age again. The story is not deep. I knew five minutes into it how it was going to end, and I did not care at all. I just wanted to get there. I wanted to enjoy the ride, and what a great ride it was. I gave it a B just because the story is pretty flimsy. I want to read the book. I feel like it's probably a deeper story. But as a visual treat, as a piece of nostalgia, it's so good. And the one final warning I will have is do not take young kids to see this. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but there's about a five to six minute scene that happens that was not in any of the marketing or any of the advertising that is one of those things that Haugen loves that he put into the Oasis that's part of one of the challenges. That is something kids flat out should not be exposed to at their age. If you take an eight-year-old to this, they're going to have nightmares from this. I guarantee it. This is, it blew my mind, as a matter of fact. And look, there are some language. There are a couple F-bombs in this, and there is there is some content. That's why I continue to believe that this was written for people my age, even though it features a lot of things that would make sense for a younger crowd. But really, who are, who's playing World of Warcraft in these massively multiplayer online games? Is it 15-year-olds, or is it 30- to 40-year-olds? I think it's more 30- to 40-year-olds. So I, I believe that I'm right when I suggest the audience of this film. The audience this film was intended for should love this movie. If you're not big into pop culture or games and stuff, then you're going to lose, you know, you're just going to have to rely on the story, and I don't think that you're going to love it. But if you grew up when I grew up, and you like things like the Goldbergs and Stranger Things that did nostalgia but nowhere to anywhere near the extent that Ready Player One does, then you're going to adore this film, and I did. I gave it a B, but it's something I plan and expect I'll probably rewatch many times. Like It'll be something that'll run on TV a lot, and I'll just tune in for partial just to look at it again. It's something I want to go see in IMAX in 3D because the first time in a long time I saw something in standard def where I was a little bit disappointed because I know how great it probably looks in 3D. So it gets a recommendation from me. It's very good. It's better than I thought it was going to be. I was not particularly high on it, like I said, going in, but I was thrilled going out. This is old school Spielberg. This is a feel-good movie. It's got a good message in the end. I like the way the story actually ends. 
and all of the meat and potatoes on the inside, all the style, all of, all of it is just so good and fun and entertaining. And ultimately, even though we do watch Breaking Bad and Mad Men and dark things, ultimately we want to be truly entertained and to have fun. And this movie allows us to do that. And thus it's a success. And thus I will recommend it to anybody. You know, one one quick thing before I go. The Blade Runner sequel that came out, I wrote about it, obviously, after I screened it last year, and I gave it high marks. I honestly gave it high marks because I thought I was supposed to give it high marks, if I'm being totally honest with you. I knew when I left it I would never watch it again, which I put in the review. I didn't have fun watching that movie. That movie wasn't fun to watch at all. It was boring. It was too long. But it felt important at the time. Ready Player One is fun and entertaining and fast-paced despite the fact that it's two hours and 20 minutes long. And it's something that I can recommend because it's something I want to see again. Blade Runner, I got wrong, quite frankly. I didn't lie to you. But I wanted to like it, and so I found a way in my review to do that. And I think a lot of critics do that, quite frankly. Not all of them, but I think that a lot of them are guilty of that at times. But Blade Runner was not very good. It wasn't that the acting was bad. It wasn't. But I wasn't even a big fan of the original Blade Runner at all, as a matter of fact. I like the story, but I like to kind of read about the story than watch it because it's kind of a dull film, just like the sequel was. Ready Player One is the opposite. I'm not saying that those two films are comparable. They're not. If you want to compare Ready Player One to anything, you compare it to the Jumanji reboot, which I thought was fantastic, by the way. I have not, I think, done this podcast since I saw that. I saw it in January, um, and I loved it. I, I laughed throughout it. I thought the casting was good. Jack Black was tremendous in that film. The Rock was great. Kevin Hart, who I'm not the biggest fan of because he's so overexposed, was funny in that film. Karen Gillum is just drop-dead gorgeous, and she was very good. But I, I just really enjoyed that movie. I had such a good time watching it. And, of course, it was avatars in a video game world, the whole deal. And Ready Player One does share some similarities with it, but not a lot when you really think about the full story. But those are the two movies over the last few years that, that I can point to and say, I have more fun watching those than just about anything else in the world. Lego Batman might be on that list, too. But Jumanji and Ready Player One... If you like Jumanji, I think you're going to like Ready Player One, even though it comes at things from a different perspective, and it's certainly not as funny. But it's a really good film. All right, so that is Outkick to Culture, a new edition in 2018, the first. I hope that you understand where I'm coming from. I'm still on this journey. This journey doesn't end until you die, and you never reach the end of this road. You just continue to try and take steps forward. It's Good Friday, which is an empty day, but we realize that joy comes in the morning. Today is a day, I said this on Twitter, and I'm going to end with this. When you really stop and think about Good Friday and think about your own life, I don't care right now if you've accepted Christ into your heart or considered it or if you're sort of on the fence trying to learn more. Luke 23:46, Father, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus' last words on the cross, after at that moment he was about to deliver the ultimate, ultimate sacrifice to save us all from our sins and save us from the penalty of death. 
no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what challenges seem insurmountable, what things you feel like you're in by yourself, what people you believe have wronged you. I think it was Teresa of Avila. I'm not positive about this, but I read it a couple of days ago. Someone much smarter than me said that if you will stop what you're doing, stop your life when it feels like it's careening out of control or when it's in control, if you will stop and see that hill outside of Jerusalem, outside the walls, if you stop and see that hill, picture that cross and picture Christ nailed to the wood with a crown of thorns placed on him, bleeding from the forehead in agony, about to be pierced in the side by a spear. But even in that moment, stretched across that cross, his arms are outstretched. And if you were to remove those nails, his arms would ultimately start to fall forward and be able to actually embrace you and hug you because on the cross, he wasn't showing his power over death. He was showing who he was. He was showing who God is. He was showing what love truly looks like. Whether this is the first day that you've ever contemplated something like this, whether you're like me and you've believed for a long time but only truly been mature enough to handle it and start to live it over the last half year, whether or not you've been a great Christian for decades. We are all the same. And last night in my prayer, and I always say, you know, I, I request things, I ask things, I petition God for things, and then I sell, and then I say another thing that Christ said during this tumultuous time when he said, but not my, not my will, but thine be done. Last night I prayed, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I suggest you try the same in your life today. Even if you don't grasp it yet, even if this is the first day of your faith, even if you don't fully believe yet, try it. Add it to your prayer today. If you don't pray, start. Wherever you are right now, listen to this. As soon as I finish speaking in about 30 seconds, turn off my voice. Just sit there in your car or wherever you're listening to this. And thank you, by the way, for spending time with me and for caring uh, about this show coming back. We'll see what the future holds. Just get silent and say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Hand him everything. Because when you hand him something, he's going to hand you something new in return. And what's new isn't always the best, but in this case, I promise you it is. Thanks. That's how I kick the culture. Happy Easter weekend to you and yours. I hope all the success in the world finds each one of you, and we'll see you soon.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.